turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, we welcome you. Just to give you a heads up, we've been preaching, we've been going through the Gospel of John for uh, some time now, making our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We ended with chapter 5 last week, and so now this week we are picking up in this new chapter, John chapter 6. And so what I want to do is read this morning from John 6 and verses 1 to 15. John writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up His eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the Five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice that Jesus demonstrated His power and glory in taking such a small amount of food and multiplying it for thousands to eat. Therefore, He demonstrated, Lord, that In Him and through Him and by Him are all provisions freely given. But Father, we we pray this morning that as we work through this passage of Scripture, that we would not fall into the error of the crowds. That we would not make Jesus do and be something and someone who He was not. That we would not mistake His mission for our own desires and lose the Gospel in doing so. 
And so, Father, I just pray that You would illuminate our minds and hearts as we study Your Word this morning. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The imperative to follow Jesus is a dominant one that's found throughout the Gospels. Roughly 27 times we find it on the lips of Jesus calling His hearers to follow Him. This is what a disciple of Jesus does, is it not? That's, that's what He does. He follows His Master. He seeks to learn from Him. And as He learns from Him, He then imitates what He sees His Master do. When a disciple strays away, he doesn't then redefine the will of God and the will of Christ. No, he repents. And as he repents, he turns away from the erroneous path he's following and he gets back on the path of Christ. That's what a disciple does. Now, following Jesus also implies that we know what following Jesus means. It's not something that's just left up to our own imaginations. It's not a matter of guesswork. It is defined for us very clearly by Jesus Himself and explained even further by His apostles in the rest of the New Testament. So here's just a sampling. This is the clear revelation of what it means to follow Jesus with just a few texts. John 13.34 Jesus says there, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here's how you follow Me, Jesus says. You've You've seen me love you. You've been with me in my ministry. You've seen me wash your feet and serve you even though I'm king. And you are about to see me love you in an even greater way as I shed my own blood for you. This is what love looks like. Now you do the same for your brothers and sisters. John 17, 18 Jesus is praying there to the Father about His disciples, and He says, just as you sent Me into the world, just as the Father sent Him into the world, so I have sent them, My disciples, into the world. You, Father, have sent Me with a mission to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to call sinners to repentance and to bear witness to You and Your glory even in My death. And now I'm sending My disciples to do the same thing. To bear witness. To preach the Gospel. And if it is in Your will even to glorify You in their death. One more. Ephesians chapter. 4, verse 32, Paul is instructing the church. He's instructing disciples in what it looks like to put on 
the new man, which is created after the likeness of God. He says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Just as God forgave you. In the same manner. So how do you follow Jesus as His disciple? How do you live out this reality that you are now a new creation in Christ? Paul says you forgive in the same manner that God forgave you. Which means, brothers and sisters, that your forgiveness within the context especially of the church is going to come at a great cost to yourself. Gospel-shaped forgiveness Disciple living, especially in the context of forgiveness, is not easy. It'll hurt. And it'll hurt you as you seek to forgive your brothers and sisters. It's the way of the cross. And yet through that pain, through that affliction, comes about a great Gospel picture And frankly, life, joy, peace. Now what you can see from all of these different texts I just cited, and many more like them, is that crucial to understanding what it means to be a disciple is that we understand what Jesus' own mission was. His mission, His life, defines ours. The way He lived is the way we are to conduct ourselves now as those who are made in His image. The way He loved us is the way we love one another. The way He laid His life down for us is how we lay our lives down for one another. But on the other hand, if if we don't understand His mission and His work rightly, We won't understand our calling as His disciples. We won't follow Him. We won't preach the true Gospel. We'll preach a false Gospel. And indeed, we will believe in a false Jesus. Because we don't have His work right. Misunderstanding the mission of Jesus results in acting contrary always the will of God. And that contrary acting very often have eternal consequences. This is the main problem that we see develop among the crowds in this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. They didn't understand His mission. They acted out of this ignorance of His Work, and so as a result, we find Jesus withdrawing from them, leaving them, not embracing what they are seeking to do. The story is no doubt a very amazing one. It's the largest miracle that Jesus ever performed, and probably because of its sheer size and the amount of people who were affected by this one particular miracle, we find it recorded for us in all four 
of the Gospels. It's in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and then here, of course, in John chapter 6. But one of the things that we find is that John's telling of the story is a little different from the other Gospel writers. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the focus is almost exclusively on the miracle itself and, and the amazing power that's being demonstrated there through Jesus. The details illuminate the compassion that Jesus had on the crowds as they came to Him and He found them to be very hungry. And it, and it shows us the creative power that He possessed to turn five small loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to completely satisfy and fill well over 5,000 people. John's version of the story includes these details, but he adds more about the crowd, particularly about their response to Jesus. And what he tells us about the crowds is that many of them correctly identified who Jesus was. They recognized Him as the prophet who was to come into the world. But because their understanding of His mission was flawed, their response caused Jesus not to receive them as genuine disciples, but to withdraw from them. To leave. You see, they weren't looking to follow Him in His mission. They were looking to make Him someone who served their own desires. Now, as the story begins, John sets the scene for us in the first four verses. As you can see there, Jesus travels across the Sea of Galilee to Tiberias, and He, along with His disciples, go up to a mountain in order to find a place to get some rest. If you read the other Gospel accounts, you find there that the disciples had just returned to Jesus from their missionary journey, if you will. Jesus had sent out the twelve to go and preach the Gospel and to heal the sick, and now they're returning. They've been on a long journey and they need some rest. And so that's what they're looking for, a place to rest from their journeys. Well, they travel to find this place of rest, but as you see from the text, rest seems to be eluding them. John tells us that a large crowd followed Jesus. And verse 10 says that the crowd consisted of about 5,000 men. That's males. We're we're talking about more than 5,000 people. Just the males were numbered here. So 5,000 males plus women and children. Large crowd. John also tells us why the crowds were following him in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That's, That's why they're following him. This is a description that we've already seen in chapter 2 and chapter 4. It's not a positive one. They're sign seekers. Jesus said to some of the Galileans in John chapter 4, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
These people were only interested in Jesus as a miracle worker. As a man who could give them some material items, some worldly benefits, and pretty much nothing more. And this this same theme continues in John 6. The large crowd of people follows Jesus because they saw the signs and they wanted to see more. Well, their pursuit gives Jesus an opportunity to test the faith of some of His disciples. He looks out at the crowd and and then He looks to Philip and He asks Philip in verse 5, where can we buy some bread so that these people can eat? And then John writes in verse 6, Jesus said this to test Him, for He Himself knew what He would do. Now this testing wasn't a way for Jesus to expose Philip as an unbeliever by any means. Philip was a genuine disciple who genuinely believed that Jesus was the Christ and he believed on Him with saving faith. But it did show Philip and it did show the other disciples just how small their genuine faith really was. And how much greater it could indeed become. Many times the Lord does that to us, you know. He brings us through a trial. He brings us through some kind of test in order to refine our faith and make us trust in His goodness and in His power even more. That's the purpose of afflictions very often. And that's what He does here with Philip and the other disciples as well. He brings them into an impossible situation to show them the infinite possibilities that are found through Him. He says, essentially, we're going to feed all of these people. Now, Philip, how do you think we're going to do that? His disciples and Philip respond as exactly as you would expect them to. They say, if we pretty much had almost a year's worth of money to spend to buy these people food, the exact number he gives is about 200 days worth of labor. If we had almost this amount of money, we still wouldn't have enough to feed each person a little. To feed each person a small crumb. And then Andrew points out that all they had was a few small loaves of barley bread, which was... This is like poor people bread. That's all they've got. And a couple of fish. Well, that was more than enough for Jesus to work with. So He has the people sit down, and then He orders the small amount of food they had to be passed out among them. Only as it goes around, it increases 10,000 fold. And everyone is fed. And there's even leftovers that Jesus tells His disciples to gather. This was an obvious and great miracle that thousands of people recognized. But John goes on to add in verses 14 and 15 that the crowd reacted in a way that caused Jesus to withdraw from them. Verse 14, he says, when the people saw the sign, again, they're they're sign seekers, they're miracle 
Miracle seekers, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They recognized that what he had just done and what they had just witnessed was a real miracle. Something that could only occur through divine intervention in the world. And then from this seeing, they go on to make the right conclusion about Jesus' identity. This is the prophet who was to come into the world. These were people who were no doubt familiar, at least somewhat, with the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied that in the future, God would raise up a prophet like him and even greater than him. And Moses said, when this prophet arises, the people of God are to listen to everything he says. And so the people of Israel were anticipating this prophet, and the crowds here rightly recognized that Jesus was that prophet. But it's what they went on to do next that was the problem. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. The Jewish people, for many generations, had been anticipating this prophet to come. And they believed that when He came, He would be a royal figure. He would be a messianic figure. Perhaps even for some, the Messiah Himself. The problem, however, was that they believed His mission would be almost entirely political. They believed He would restore the kingdom of Israel to a place of prominence and that He would overthrow the Roman Empire whom they were under. Their beliefs about Him were very ethnocentric. His coming was all about the rise of the Jewish people and the subjugation of the nations under them. The royal prophet and Messiah was there in their minds to bring a bloody war that would end with them as the victors over the Romans. And so what do they want to do? They want this to start now. They want to make him king. They want to overthrow Herod. They want to overthrow Caesar and make Jesus of Nazareth king. Jesus didn't come into the world to bring this kind of reckoning. He came into the world to save it. He didn't come to shed the blood of the nations. He came to shed His own blood for them. And His mission was not to conquer Herod or Caesar. His mission was to conquer an even greater power in this world, which was death Itself. That was his target. That was his enemy. You see, the crowd had correctly identified Jesus as the prophet and correctly identified him as the king of Israel. But they were totally wrong about his mission. And the result was that their will and their actions were contrary to the will of God. And so, what does Jesus do? He withdrew. He wanted no part of it. 
And then later in chapter 6, we find this same people who is wanting to make him king here and now because they have a certain view of what he has come to do. When they find out what he has really come to do and who he really is, they leave him. They now want nothing to do with him. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to close this morning by way of just illustrating how this same kind of error that we see these crowds committing here works its way into the thoughts and minds of many professing Christians today. The prosperity gospel. Probably many of you have heard of it. Some of you perhaps not. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel which teaches that Jesus' mission of dying and being raised from the dead was to bring about a life of material prosperity for you now. It teaches, broadly speaking at least, that God wants your life now on this earth to be one of comfort, to be one of riches, recognition, success, bad health and physical, emotional, or spiritual suffering are not intended for you in any way in the name of Jesus. That's roughly the prosperity gospel. Now many people hear this, see it preached perhaps on TBN, and they recognize it for what it is. A heresy. An absolute deviation from what all of Scripture teaches. But the idea that God would never have us go through any kind of suffering is an idea that is believed to many. It just normally has a very different application. Sometimes it takes takes place in the context of a church. Things get hard. People sin against one another. The hard route would be to endure some kind of affliction to work for reconciliation. We don't want anything to do with that a lot of times. has many different applications. But this past week in particular, I came across an article in Time Magazine as I read it, was deeply troubling and sad all at the same time. The headline of the article was called, I'm a Christian with stage 4 cancer. I want death with dignity. It was written by a woman who is in the midst of a horrible situation. Stage 4 cancer. Pain. Suffering. She is in the midst of great bodily suffering. And in the article, she makes a case for assisted suicide. That's what she meant by death with dignity. Now it's obviously an emotional article. The woman has gone through many rounds of chemo 
many surgeries. All these things have caused her lots of pain. Lots of, lots of pain. She talks about days when, when she could barely breathe. Days when her body was so weak from the chemo. She would have a surgery and her body just would not recover. So she was in the same pain for prolonged periods of time. Throughout the article, it's, it's very clear because of what she's arguing for and some things she says in it, that suffering and severe suffering at that is not something she believes God calls us to. It's, it's more like something that happens and then God is there to grant us an escape from it. At the end of the article, she, she says, I've prayed about this. Again, assisted suicide. There's some kind of overdose of medicine. I've prayed about this and I felt His presence. I think what God was showing me was that this is the alternative. This is the peaceful way that I'm granting you to go. God in her mind is calling her to a comfortable death. Because that's what God always wills to do. Is it not? To grant us comfort and not suffering. Now, I read this article many times trying to understand where she was coming from. Trying to feel at least as best as, as I could feel what she was going through. The pain she was enduring and attempting to communicate. But every time I read this article, I, I had the same question as I was going down the page every time. Where's the gospel? In the suffering. Where is the hope of the gospel that allows me to say, count it all joy when you face various trials? Joy. Where's the, the message? that strengthens me or strengthens a person to say the very words with Paul. We rejoice in our sufferings. Where's the witness of victory over sin and death that helps me confidently say no in tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, in these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In them. The problem, friends, with this perspective 
as difficult as it may be, the perspective of many others goes back fundamentally to their understanding of Jesus' mission. Fundamentally, yes, He came to take away our sin, but He also takes away our earthly sufferings now. Which is a belief that is false. His mission was not only to take away our sin and to bring us reconciliation with the God whom we had offended. His mission was also to make disciples who followed Him even in His sufferings. We are not called to escape affliction. We are not called nor promised by any means comfortable deaths or comfortable lives. We are called in the midst of suffering to bear witness to the truth that sufferings of this present time, no matter how severe they may be, stage four cancer, the losing of family and friends, beheadings, burnings, feedings to lions, no matter how severe they may be, these sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what we bear witness to in the midst of them. And we have to get this message right. We can't err on this point as Christians or as a local body of Christ. I'll tell you, if there's any burden that I have for Christians in this present time, it's that we understand the cost of discipleship. That it costs something. Because brothers and sisters, a day is coming and for some it is already here when following Christ will make you lose something. There might have been a time when because Christianity was at least largely culturally accepted, the most suffering you might have endured here would be ridicule and being reviled by friends or family. Those days are not going to last. They never have in the history of the world. A day will come when you will be called to lose something. And when that day comes, you cannot be equipped with a gospel that doesn't prepare you to go through the affliction with praise and joy to God. You need a gospel of Christ. You need one with power. You need one with truth. And you need one, brothers and sisters, that has both a cross that you bear with Jesus and a message of a resurrection to follow. That is the sole reason why we can say in our afflictions, these things are nothing in comparison to what is to come. 
Because my sufferings now are but a vapor. A vapor. I mean, even, even if I've got two, three, four years, maybe even decades of pain in my body, what is that in comparison to eternity? The presence of Christ. This is, this is the Gospel that, that Jesus calls us This is the message He has preached to us. This is the life He equips us for and He's he's offered to us. This, This is how Jesus says, come follow Me. Take up your cross and follow Me. Friends, you know what's amazing? You do that. I mean, this, this this seems counter-cultural and radically almost illogical. Jesus says, you do that, you bear your cross with Me, and you will have true rest. Rest is found in Christ and through the cross and even beyond. Rest is not found in attempting to bear the burdens of the world and the sin of the world on yourself. Through the cross and bringing it to the cross and looking beyond to His coming and His kingdom to come on the day of the resurrection. When you have this Gospel, brothers and sisters, and when you have this Savior, there will be no trial that comes your way that you will not be completely equipped to overcome and rejoice in the midst of. Would you pray with me? Father, may